0: Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform
1: of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, uh, great to have you here, Eric. Uh, really excited to dig into this episode here uh, on the future of supply chain.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, Eric Nieves is co-founder, CEO of, of Plus One Robotics. And out of everyone I know, Eric has this amazing ability to distill a lot of complicated topics uh, in and around industrial automation robotics in a way that a lot of people can digest and understand and relate to. So I'm super excited to have them here, uh, as we dig into the industry, but Eric, you know, w- would love to hear the personal story, uh, because behind every startup is a amazing set of individuals. What, what's, what's your background? How did you get to plus one robotics?
0: Well, thanks for your interest in that. Um, Uh, yeah, I'm a long time industrial roboticist, but it sure didn't start that way. Uh, (laughs) effectively, I was, a, a washed up physics, uh, you know, graduate. Um, I worked my way through college, uh, in a factory that made cement mixers of all things. And I would work there every summer to earn money for school. And, uh, you know, my job was to hold an 11 pound electric grinder you know, over my head for, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. And uh, the foreman rolled up in his little cart one day and he said, Eric, I hear you know something about computers. Well, the truth is I didn't know a whole lot about computers, but whatever it was he had in mind had to be better than me holding this grinder all day. So uh, I said, sure. And he pointed me to a machine that they had in the corner. He said, look, we bought this thing. Nobody knows how to make it run. Why don't you take a look at it? Well, that thing was an industrial welding robot. And, you know, I managed to read and decipher the, you know, manual, and it's, you know, techno technobabble, uh, and got this thing to run. And I thought I was on Easy Street after that. You know, I loaded a bunch of parts in a fixture, and I hit a green button, and I sat down for 15 minutes. <laughs> so uh, that's how... Uh, I worked my way through uh, the rest of my schooling and it became pretty evident to me that I did not have a future in physics, uh, which was my major. um, And boy, robotics sure was uh, looking like a good field. And so I actually went to work for the company that made that robot. And I was there for 25 years uh, until uh, I left to form plus one. So, uh, effectively, I've been an industrial roboticist my adult life. And uh, it's been really fun to see this industry grow, uh, you know, in the years since, you know, I programmed my first one in 1988.
1: Wow, that's awesome. And uh, during that time, also, you you had meaningful uh, engagement and, and contributions to uh, the Southwestern Research Institute. Would you dig into that and and help us understand that Um, that organization and and your involvement there as well?
0: Yes. So Southwest Research Institute, uh, for the listeners that may not know, is a not-for-profit research house in San Antonio. And they do a lot of, of course, government contract work, defense, space, uh, science, and such. But they have a pretty strong robotics and industrial automation group and uh they took an interest in ross ros the robot operating system which at the time that southwest research or SWERI, as they're known uh, you know started taking an interest in ROS, it was this nascent open source robotics framework emerging out of silicon valley and it was never intended for industrial applications. Ross really had their sights set on the personal robot and, you know, home robot and commercial applications, certainly not industry. But uh, Sean Edwards uh, at Southwest Research, a, a researcher there, took note of what was happening with Ross and said, boy, that would really help solve thorny problems we have in industry as well. And the upshot of that was what became Ross Industrial, uh, which is, uh, you know, you can think of it as a branch or a focus group uh, or a special interest group within the Ross community that takes these tools and applies them to industrial applications. And that's been very well received in industry. Uh, And that consortium is still housed uh, at Southwest Research Institute today and Caterpillar, Boeing, Amazon, Ford. it's a very well supported open source initiative for abstracting away some of the complexities uh, in industrial automation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and and uh, you know when when I have conversations, be it with with founders, uh, industry professionals, users, everybody always at some point uh, mentions Ross. so I, I wanted to to make sure we we highlighted that. Uh, but taking a step you back here, we have used the term industrial automation several times here, but what exactly do we mean by it? When, when somebody discusses industrial automation or robotics in industry, you know, what are they talking about and, and what's the historical context? Where have we come from as a long time uh, professional in the space?
0: Yeah. So industrial automation is a, is a broad term. Right? we, often conflated with robotics and uh, truth be told, robotics is, is just a subset of industrial automation. So uh, if you find yourself in, uh, you know, a commercial bakery, there is a lot of industrial automation there, uh, but it's all conveyance and processes and, uh, you know, ovens and all of this, which is now, um, you know, being managed, through some set of controls, industrial automation used to be, uh, you know, very mechanical. It was cam actuated, uh, you know, mechanisms that would, you know, produce some component or another. Right, mm-hmm. and of course, over time, we just added more and more uh, electronic control to that mix, uh, and now you can't you don't think of industrial automation without think of it, thinking of it as a controls problem. So uh, industrial automation definitely uh, serves the manufacturing industry. Uh, automotive is a very highly automated industry. Uh, and so you see lots of automatic conveyance and maybe automatic guided vehicles and certainly many, many robots.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, robotics as kind of a subset and and in some ways the halo of industrial automation has to be thought of in a couple of different contexts as well. So you have process robots and material handling robots. If you looked under the roof of, you know, any manufacturing concern of size, an automotive tier supplier, uh, you know, ag equipment, what have you, you're going to see lots of robots, but the majority of them are going to be process robots. These are the robots that are doing your welding, your painting, your cutting, uh, etc. And then you're going to have another set of robots that are doing material handling. These are the ones that are loading the, you know, maybe blanks into a CNC lathe and, uh, doing parts exchange and maybe palletizing at the end of the line, all of those sort of material handling applications where there is no value added process per se, but still work that needs doing. Yeah. Um, everyone is familiar with, uh, the three Ds of robotics, right? When we look at applications, what do we generally see robots doing? It's either dirty, dangerous, or dull, <laughs> uh, sometimes somebody will say de- degrading to the human spirit right so uh you know what welding is a great example of an application where uh this is a skill that somebody has to acquire and is valuable but it is a dangerous uh you know an application yeah uh, inhalation fumes uh, arc uh, flash in your eyes etc Find robots to do uh, those tasks that are, you know, dirty, dull, or dangerous.
1: And 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 within this world, uh, where does Plus One fit in? Where you're you're currently solving a, a lot of problems uh, in and around distribution automation.
0: Right. So uh, Plus One was predicated on the same sort of market uh, economics that we see in manufacturing, meaning. Uh, there is, isn't enough labor to, uh, address all of the tasks required, uh, you know, et cetera. We see that in spades in distribution and logistics. Uh, it's very difficult to, you know, fully staff a warehouse or a fulfillment center these days. It is the number one problem in that space is labor availability. Yep. And, uh, so we, saw that industrial automation and robotics uh, had a role to play to sort of uh, relieve these constraints and let the industry continue to grow. So uh, that's what plus one is about. is we take some of these advanced technologies that have just you know started to come on line in the last you know few years and apply them to do material handling uh, robots in supply chain applications.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and and you know, I think that in and of itself is a fascinating topic and we're gonna surely have you on um, for, for another episode to really dig in there. But as we continue to dig into this Industrial Automation 101 theme, in, when when there's a problem either on a manufacturing line or in a warehouse facility, how, how do you go about tackling these problems? And, and I want to point out, I remember one of our first conversations we had, you, were, you articulated how um, complex it is to go observe and assess a process in order to build a solution and system around it. And I just wanted to dig into that because it was super helpful for me to understand and, and be in your shoes as a founder doing exactly that uh, in distribution.
0: Yes, Um, one of the challenges in in this market, because in logistics, pretty much every customer you're going to, this will be their first robot, right, Uh, (laughs) Yeah, is indicative of kind of where we were with manufacturing robots 20 years ago. But what it is, is you have to understand how best to elucidate what the solution really needs to do. And the... Generally, what happens is a customer thinks they have this problem. Uh, They have, you know, some application that they either just can't keep staffing for or they've decided from an ergonomics perspective, it's it's not something they want people to be doing anymore, and they want to automate it. Okay, so they have these notions of there was a person. Now let me just replace that person with a fixed-axis robot, and I'll be done. Well, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, first, um, and this is the motto at plus one robotics is robots work, but people rule. Yeah. People are a lot better at processes than robots are. Okay. What the robot is going to bring you is repeatability of the process and endurance. It can do the same thing over and over and over and over can be, you know, between now and 10 years from now. So that's its value, but understanding what the application entails uh, requires a certain amount of ingenuity from, you know, the uh, engineers involved in the project, right? So here's what happens. The customer will say, I think this is what I need to do. Can you, you know, propose a robot to do X? And you walk in there and you'll say, okay. There's actually a lot more going on here than just picking up this part and putting it into this machine and waiting for the machine to be done and taking it out. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's parts flow, incoming and outgoing parts. Uh, Just yesterday, I was at another user that this would be their first experience with industrial automation of the robotic variety. And that's all they wanted to do was just take some parts, out of a box and put them into a container sounds easy until you see all that happens for them to open the box initially <laughs> right? So, somebody's got a knife they're cutting the you know box lid off inside the box is a plastic bag with a rubber band let's take the rubber band off spread the bag out inside that is a label that they want to pull the label out and have it ride with the tote, okay? That's wrinkled half the time. How do you find it? How do you pick it up? Once you've done all that, then you're to what they had initially in mind, which is just taking the parts out and putting them into the tote. That's the easy part. It's all the sort of peripheral tasks we associate with the actual application at hand, and we just don't think about them. Right. Yeah. So, uh, a a good engineer, the first thing that they look at in any application for industrial automation is what's coming in, what's going out, and what are we connecting to on both ends of this? Because the first rule of industrial automation is eliminate the process altogether if you can. Sure. Why are we doing this at all? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, And generally, you find out. Yeah. Okay. We they. They need to do it, but maybe they don't need to do it the way that we're doing it today. Case in point, Um, we had uh, a customer that uh, they have um, an accumulation of lots and lots of goods that come down into a spot and they make kind of a big jumbled mess. And then your job is to take, make some sort of order out of the chaos and pick one thing out of the time, uh, one thing at a time out of that mess and, and send them on their way. Well, that's great. And if I think in terms of just the task, that's what I would do. I would put a robot at the bottom of this and, you know, uh, figure out how to deal with that jumbled pile. And yet, if I just step back 50 feet and look up, I see where they're all coming from. They're in a pretty good order where they're coming from. We managed (laughs) to take semi-order make it into chaos, and then expect to extract order from it. Well, how about we eliminate that piece? Let's not automate this process because that's the way the people did it. The people did it that way because they could. There's lots of applications where you could just change the flow and make it easier yet. Yeah. Maybe it's, you know, there's benefits in having it done the way it was previously because it kind of brought the stuff to the people. But if it's not people now and it's industrial equipment, it doesn't matter if it's hanging from the ceiling. Right? Right. So, uh, you know, rethink the process.
1: So a, a, a couple of things there really stand out. The, the first being that, uh, as you evaluate, these situations uh, where a, a customer says, well, this is what we think we need solved. And you're going through and you're almost um, breaking down a broader behavior into sub processes. Yes. You gain this um, appreciation for humans because we're able to do a lot of things on yes. the edge <laughs> without being told. Um, and Absolutely right. <laughs> and then, yep. um, and, yeah. The other thing that I would say to that is, you
0: know, when I'm looking at a task and I have to think about it in terms of, you know, what would the robot do? I have to take, and I do this all the time, I tuck my right hand in behind my back, right? Because this robot is a one-armed beast. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't think about how much of the work we do is by manual. It requires two hands. We do this, of course, intuitively, and we don't think that, hey, if I bring a piece of industrial automation in here, it has limitations that I don't have. And you have to play those things out. So if you ever see me uh, at a customer evaluating an application, that's why you'll see my right hand tucked (laughs) in my belt behind my back. I'm thinking (laughs) like the robot.
1: I, I have yet to uh, see you do that, but the next time we meet, I will certainly uh, ask for that. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and it makes a lot of sense, but I guess when you think about the uh, form factors that we're currently dealing with, is there a reason that we have simplified it to one arm versus two, or are there instances where you do see this application where you have multiple arms that are able to perhaps resemble yeah. more of a human?
0: Yeah, so in the process robot side, there are often multiple robots working together, okay? And you'll see that in, imagine if you're welding an exhaust pipe, and so there's uh, welding that happens on both ends of that muffler. Well, you'll have two robots that are doing that in a synchronous fashion. It works better that way. But in material handling, you don't generally see uh, Two armed robots. One of them, one of the main reasons is they've been historically difficult to program uh, the coordination between your left hand and your right hand. Uh, you know, uh, think of it like this if you and I wanted to clap each other's hands, right? we would have to look at each other. We would have to time it and we would have to give each other signals and we would clap each other's hands and it still wouldn't work very well. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of synchronization and, and, uh, IO that has to happen between these two. On the other hand, you right now could take and clap your hands behind your head and not think about it and do it very well. So it's about getting both arms on the same brain right and that technology is really just emerging over the last 10 years these uh bilateral or dual armed robots uh rethink uh out of boston was uh famous for introducing baxter this two-armed robot that you could work nearby because it was also a uh, collaborative or safe robot uh even so even though it had both arms and one brain, it was still, in some ways, a chore to get those two arms to synchronize to do work together. So uh, that's really where a lot of the development is right now, mm-hmm. is an ease of use for what I'll call bilateral manipulation or, or two-armed robots. Yeah. But if I think in terms in a longer term, clearly this is what, where we end up, right? When we build our processes in manufacturing, in distribution, in whatever, we build those processes around our capabilities. We're the people. So when we as roboticists try to plug into that, we have to ultimately replicate to the degree possible that human form factor. So in the end, you do end up with, two-armed robots because you're a two-armed, uh, you know, person and you built your applications and your processes around what you can do.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, shifting, uh, back into, uh, the, the way you, you tackle these, uh, uh, issues around constructing systems. Uh, the second thing, uh, that also stuck out is, uh, there are system-wide implications when uh, we call somebody such as yourself to come in and say, hey, how, how do we better automate or retool this one area or one behavior? There's actually mm-hmm. big ripple effects. And you know, have, have users actually come to the point where they understand that? Or is, is there also a lot of education required that when you start to implement automation, uh, Into an environment, it's just not in a subset or a, a small area. Th- this is you're you're having macro level impacts, right?
0: Right, it, you're correct. Uh, you do have to take a system wide view, and this is why the industry historically has used system integrators to perform that function. Right. So, if I'm the end user and I have this process that I would like to automate. Uh, The system integrator will be the one that looks at the flow, uh, determines the major components, the robot, and if it's a material handling robot, what the gripper is gonna be designed to do, uh, how do you get the goods in, how do you get the full pallets out, uh, safety, the equipment, and now the data, right? Mm-hmm. Over the last five years, now it's we want to have uh, statistical process control over this whole uh, system. We want to integrate this uh, robot cell to our warehouse execution system, et cetera. So then there's a data integration piece that we didn't have to deal with in the 80s and 90s, but we certainly do today. Right? So the system integrator is the one that generally does that work now who is the system integrator yeah often it is a third party that that's what they do and you know they'll work with the client on maybe the client has a preferred robot supplier maybe the client has uh, their only use Lincoln welding you know power supplies whatever it is uh, they will build that system for you um, sometimes the end user is their own systems integrator if they have the engineering wherewithal and the bandwidth and that's really the issue is you know often the engineering team at a facility is the one keeping the facility running and maintained and other things and they just don't have time to go do the next thing but if you do then it's conceivable that the end user could be the system integrator i bring this up because we're starting to see more of that with the emergence of collaborative robots. Mm, right? yeah. Collaborative robots are simpler to use, simpler to deploy, right? uh, and they uh, take out some of the complexity of the system because they inherently address the safety problem. You can just put a force-limited robot into a facility and you don't have to worry about a cage and an interlock and a light curtain and those types of things that your typical, you know, staff on your team wouldn't have a lot of exposure to.
1: Yep.
0: So if you eliminate that from the system, all of a sudden they go, well, I, I know what gripper I need to pick up those parts. I can, you know, order a set of components from uh, supplier and and a, and build it the way that i want and put it on the end of this robot and i know that this robot is so easy to use i can just pick the end of the robot you know move it around by the nose and tell it pick it up from here and set it there and it'll just do that all day so end user as system integrator has only become enabled because the products have been you know developed around the notion of simplicity and ease of use.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, it does. Uh, I will tell you it's limited, right? Again, that works very well
0: on the material handling side. It doesn't work so well with painting. Yeah, you're not going to, you know, deploy a paint robot at an automotive OEM yourself. That's definitely gonna require system integrators and, and such.
1: Right, and, and, and a, a, a part of it's also the dynamic that you have a, a certain skill set that scales across various different instances, right? So uh, painting example taken between OEM, A, B, and C, there's also that experience to be had, the fact that you don't just sit in OEM, A, you get to see what B, C, D configurations are like, and then I think as a virtue, also cross-pollinate best practices um, as well. Absolutely. Um, so Absolutely. Th- th- this is obviously complex stuff. Um, I think, you know, so far you've done an amazing job, uh, breaking this down, but you know, how should people think about it? Because we're talking about a world that has hardware, it has software, there are service layers on this. Um, is there a framework that, that you view the, the robotics world through? Um, are there certain areas that excite you more than others where you might see value accreting for companies in the space over others? Is there areas for development, uh, that, that you think we need to spend more time on? Um, cause, uh, also, you know, uh, sweary has done amazing research in the space and we need to continue to do stuff like that, uh, uh, uh as well. So just we want to kind of take your, um, um, thoughts on this cause, um, It it can be a lot to swallow. You're right.
0: And yet it's meaningful work that we're all going to have to wrestle with because the world isn't getting any bigger. We have limited resources in terms of human capital, and we need to apply it in the most valuable tasks that we can. And that means that a lot of the repetitive work we have to offboard to productivity tools, and that's all industrial automation or robots are. Is just a means by which you can get more done and free up resources internally. So uh, that dynamic isn't changing. We're just going to continue to, you know, uh, experience more growth. Uh, many more millions of people coming online into the consumer class. There just needs to be more work done with the resources we have. So industrial automation has an important role to play. So when I think about it, uh, I always come back to what is the use case? How do I think about the tasks that need doing and What of them can be automated in short order? What is a longer-term application, meaning it requires more technology development? And and this is what what has changed over my career, is you now have an interim. It doesn't just have to be, oh, this is easily solved through uh, commercially available industrial robotics tools. Let's do that oh, this can't be solved right now. Let me just wait until the technology catches up with us in you know, five or ten years. Now you have this step where you can have a human-robot collaboration. This is hugely important, and, and this is the way that, that I'd, I'd like to, your listeners to think about this problem, is what could I do if I teamed a robot and a person go back to my uh visit yesterday to that customer we said that the robot part of it that could easily be addressed was actually taking the parts out of the open box and putting them into the next thing but look at all of those tasks that the robot couldn't do the you know cutting of the box opening and you know pulling the bag and getting the label out Well, what if we left those as human tasks? Because you could have a person and a robot coexisting, working side by side. This opens up lots of opportunities for productivity gains without having to solve for X, all of the X's. Mm -hmm. Just figure out what the robot does well and figure out where the person has to, you know, complement the robot, and then, you know, you may start out as a one-to-one relationship, and over time, it's, you know, one person and several robots that they're tending to. You know, this notion of what I call cognitive collaboration, not just physical collaboration, but think about what you can do that the robot cannot, and is there a way for you to work with it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the the funny thing about that is I feel like when we talk about um, functions that are more behind the desk uh, or, or in traditional offices, we think about augmenting ourselves by freeing up time related to things like scheduling or booking travel. And we're starting to implement things like AI assistance, right, for example, to assist with that where we're not... Replacing ourselves <laughs> we're we're augmenting ourselves and doing certain things that we're better at uh, Versus others and it seems like there's a parallel there even in the uh, world of physical productivity
0: That's your your intuition is correct, right? Mm-hmm. We uh, will ultimately see the extension of you know sort of the back-office work, but knowledge based work affecting the physics of the problem mm. right that's when you know that you've you've melded the best of what the people can do with the best of what robots do is when you know you can you can sort of affect that relationship and and do so you know maybe over distance or whatever you know the the internet's uh, going to be an important tool no matter what we do
1: do here yeah that's so, right so uh, connectivity is a big part of it so uh, on the um subject of of connectivity there because a lot of these systems will be there might be remote oversight or or or, or management um you know what role does does that play as well because we kind of see you know we we go through cycles 3g 4g we're talking about 5g you know we went from you know broadband to fiber where does communications also play into this? Because this is an a, a interdisciplinary uh, solution uh, and effort.
0: Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from San Antonio, Texas, home of Rackspace. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, cloud uh, expertise in this city. And so we think about that a lot is... You know, how do we sort of share uh, what's happening to in, in one of my facilities with all of them? All right. It's this connectivity piece. And when you're dealing with connectivity just for data, okay, then, you know, data is important, and, you know, I'll, I'll pull it down when I need it, et cetera. But when you're dealing with connectivity and things in motion now of course the latency becomes much more significant to you yeah so uh... yes the advent of higher and higher speed networks just closes that loop much much tighter and then affords you the prospect of doing things uh... that otherwise you just wouldn't be able to yep. So i'm actively involved uh, sort of as a side project with uh, Goddard Space Flight Center. And they have what's called the Satellite Servicing Initiative. And this is what it is, that NASA wants to become the world's uh, satellite garage. Satellites are up in orbit, they run out of gas, and then they ultimately fall back to Earth. Uh, or they, worse, they stay up there and become space junk that you have to track forever. Yeah. Instead, what if we could refuel a satellite in orbit and have it extend its useful life? Well, that was never contemplated when they sent them into orbit, but now it is. So you can imagine a uh, you know, space vehicle approaching a satellite, having a robot reach out, grab that satellite, open the fuel cap, which was never to, intended to be opened, and then refueling the satellite. All of that from remote control, mm-hmm. earthbound latency is a huge issue. Yeah, in a situation like that, you have to deal with uh, this in your planning, etc. Uh, and you just have to take things very, very slowly. Yeah, in a manufacturing context, you wouldn't be able to do that, so you must have a tighter connection with a much shorter latency
1: yeah yeah that that totally makes sense and i'm uh glad that you uh might be spending time in my home state of maryland so tends to be nice most yes. of the time greenbelt, <laughs> greenbelt that's, Indeed. Right. Indeed. that's right that's right yeah uh, but uh r- wrapping up here you know we've uh we really gone through uh what automation is uh how you go about building these types of systems. Uh, you even touched on a, a lot of the research and advancements and, and areas we need to focus on. But the, the big thing is we, we live in a world where, you know, we see headline after headline about automation and, uh, and uh, the, the role of the human job and, and the worker. But w- what can we be doing to prepare ourselves for a world where, you know, we're sitting next to a piece of industrial automation that we're going to work hand in hand? You know, are there certain education initiatives, are there things, retraining, retooling? What, what should, you know, um, corporations be prepared for and be proactive about? Well,
0: I'm actually bullish on this. I think corporations need to be prepared for the onslaught of the next generation of talent that comes in their door that's saying, um, I do robots, what, where are we going to put them? Right? Just think about this. Robotics might be the only technology, the only technology that your first year post-bachelor's degree engineer has worked on for 10 years because they started in junior high with their Lego Mindstorms. They went to the first, uh, you know, league in uh, high school, their high school robotics clubs and then they used robots all through their engineering curriculum in college. Understand this, Santosh. Robotics has become the teaching vehicle in a lot of the curricula for engineering now because of what you mentioned. It is so cross-disciplinary. So they get, uh, in any robotics application, you're going to be doing controls, mechanisms, electrical, uh, process all of those things come together, and that makes the right type of mindset. So it is very, very much going to be the case that when I hire someone, they may say, "Well, I've never done, uh, never worked with a CNC before, but I've been working on robots for eight to ten years."
1: Mm, yeah, that's what awesome. is missing.
0: What is missing? Is the process and I encourage all young people that are interested in robotics I say yes robots are great but seldom do you just buy a robot to move through space you have to buy a ro. you buy your robot and you install it for a given process go out and learn processes learn to weld go to the garage paint the old car whatever it takes to get yourself acclimated with all the different processes that we encounter in the manufacturing and distribution context. And you will set yourself apart. There's going to be lots of people with robot background, but whoever comes with robot and is going to win.
1: Yeah. That, that, that makes so much sense with the, the uh, way you've laid out how you construct systems there there is a base knowledge yep. and then you need that con- contextual knowledge um around process. Yes. As well. It makes so much sense. Absolutely. But hey, Eric, loved having you on. Um as I generally say, one of the best voices um in general. Uh built for radio, making robots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: I appreciate that. And uh You know, we'll have to do it again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Learned a lot, and uh, we uh, hope to have you back soon as well. But with that, uh, cheers. Thank you, guys. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.